G'day, Babe 40 here. We are going out live, speaking to the world. We're having this international conversation right now. We are sharing and growing together. We're going out live over Rumble. We are going out live over YouTube. We are going out live over Odyssey. We are going out live over Twitter. We are going out live over Facebook. Right? The world is here. We're about to have this international conversation about happiness. So I got this from Apple News Plus. Right? I think it's about their happiest happiest production of the year. She teaches Yale's famous class about the science of happiness. You guys ready for the science of happiness? Here's what she's learned. And this is just so incredibly scientific. You wouldn't believe how scientific this is. You're not anti-science, are you, mate? All right? I know we're a bunch of blokes here, and I'd like to think that we are not anti-science. All right? We're all on bed with science. So you would never guess what constitutes science. So this professor is so popular that apparently one quarter of Yale's undergraduate student body signed up for a happiness class. You want to hear how happy how scientific this is happiness you know that that's not how happiness works the standard measure in our field and a measure that i should know is like really well validated even if it might not seem like that is a self-report you know i just give you a oh man that sounds really scientific right a self-report okay that's not scientific all right self-reports are not accurate people don't see themselves accurately this idea that, oh, you can just rely on a self-report for, for accuracy, I'm not convinced. That doesn't sound very scientific to me. But there are whole scientific fields, whole fields of psychology, right, that don't replicate and that are based on self-reports, such as the whole field of, of uh, personality psychology. Now, how open are you to new experiences? How neurotic are you? How conscientious are you? How extroverted? How introverted? You know what this whole field of psychology is based on? Self-reports, right? Self-reports aren't scientific. Do you see yourself accurately? Is your life experience that other people see themselves accurately? Right? This idea that this course is just so scientific and you can get happy through science. And what's the basis for these scientific reports? Self-reports, right? Can't be skeptical survey of, you know, tell me about your positive emotions. Tell me about your negative emotions. Tell me how satisfied you are with your life. And again, while this might seem like a, you know, a silly internet quiz, you know, feel like, tell me all the things about being a Leo, you know, astrological sign or something. They're not right. I mean, these are well-validated self-report measures that we have tons of psychometrics to show that the answers that you. Oh, it's well-validated. All right. So the same people who were, pushing all this nonsense that doesn't replicate. Now they're claiming that self-reports on happiness are well-validated. So how much do you trust like self-reports on, on happiness or self-reports on, on anything? Count me highly skeptical of uh, self-reports. They don't seem replicable to me. Count me skeptical. Give on this would be you know, correlated with if I were to pull you know, your social media feed or the text from your journals and do like a machine learning analysis of the positive emotional words you use. Or if I did detailed interviews with your friends and family members, these kinds of answers would match. And so we know these self-report surveys are, are tapping into some real metric. Hmm. Um, but again, I, you know. 
Okay, so that is a little more convincing. So if self-report surveys correlate with a whole other string of data that is, you know, let's say relatively objective, then, okay, here she's making a stronger point. Now I'm starting to say, yeah, maybe there is some science to what she's talking about. Self-reports on their own can't be highly skeptical. If there's any listeners out there in tech like who want to make the happiness thermometer, I would definitely pay a lot of money for that. Be great to invest in that. Yeah. Lori's class at Yale is designed for young, college-aged people. But she says these practices are not age-specific. Happiness is something that we can work at achieving at any age, which is something that she sees in the online version of this course. We get lots of learners who are in their 70s and 80s. I just recently got a handwritten letter from a learner in her 90s who is taking the class. And what I found surprising is like, yeah, some of the examples are geared towards college students or younger individuals. But but what we find is that a lot of people from many, many ages are taking the insights and applying them in their own lives. You know, one of the things we know about happiness and aging is that at least historically, happiness tends to have an inverted U function. So you're happiest when you're young. So I just looked up the latest happiness reports, right? What are the happiest countries? What would you expect are the happiest countries? Apparently, the happiest country in the world, right, is Finland. You know what Finland is filled with? Finland is filled with Finns. I'm not a an academic expert on happiness. I'm going to wager that Finns, wherever they go in the world, tend to be fairly happy people, right? I think happiness, like intelligence and athletic ability and musical ability, right, correlates strongly with certain genetics. So... Finland is the world's happiest country, according to the 2022 World Happiness Report, followed by Denmark, Iceland, Switzerland, Netherlands, Luxembourg, Sweden, Norway, Israel, and New Zealand, right? These are the happiest countries. Uh, Afghanistan, right, is ranked as the least happy country in the world. So what do these happy countries have in common? Finland, Denmark, Iceland, Switzerland, Netherlands, Luxembourg, Sweden, Norway, Israel, and New Zealand. I just can't quite put my finger on it. But just from an outside perspective, I'm not an academic expert at Yale on happiness. It sure seems like one of the factors is being around people like yourself. So yeah, Israel is diverse, but you can lead a life where you just overwhelmingly interact with, with Jews. All right. So if you can overwhelmingly interact with people like yourself, it seems to me that would be fairly predictive of higher levels of happiness. And in your 20s, then you kind of go into the real world, your happiness sort of dips into middle age. And then, you know, just around the time your kids, you know, leave home, you know, around the time of retirement, happiness starts to sweep back up again. So you get to the other side of that inverted U um, with, you know, something we don't expect, which is more aged individuals tend to be happier. That's the scope of happiness we see across different ages. But the reason that middle age tends to be a less happy place is that all these strategies we've talked about are the kinds of things that go away in middle age. You know, we're not prioritizing our friendships and our social connections. We're not taking time to be time affluent. We're often much busier. Well, I would think that uh, people in middle age are spending a tremendous amount of time with family and with work, which I would think would be happiness producing. Right? People only spend time with friends if they are not sufficiently filled by their connections with family and relations. 
you know, like things like exercise and sleep, they go by the wayside when you're in your like busy middle-aged life and career Mm -hmm. stuff. So Mm -hmm. I think, you know, if we, at any age range, if you follow some of the practices we've talked about, the evidence suggests that you will wind up improving your happiness. I'm going to suspect that having a bunch of criminally inclined people, disruptive people, antisocial people around you, is going to significantly reduce your happiness levels. Every year, the World Happiness Report ranks how people evaluate their own happiness. So, the chat says, Finns, the Danish, it is culture. They are invested in each other. They share common ideals. They've not been overrun by infidels. So, what makes it easier to invest in each other? Right? The more you have in common with each other, racially, religiously, culturally, ethnically, with regard to your values, your interests, your you know, athletics, your culture, you know, whatever you know, binds you together, the more that binds you together, the tighter those ties, the more likely you are to invest in each other. You're not going to invest in someone who is completely different from you, who is hostile to you. Right? You're not going to invest in someone who's part of a group with whom you consistently have bad experiences. So Sydney is plenty diverse, but somehow it's just a particular combination of diversity that works. And still, even though Sydney is the most diverse country in Australia, it's also the least diverse, is the most diverse city. It's also the city with the least volunteering. So volunteering tends to rank with homogeneity. So you find a lot more volunteering in Salt Lake City than you do in Los Angeles. The more homogeneous the city, somehow the more volunteering goes on because people are more willing to invest in each other if they are similar to each other. And the less common in common they have with other people, the less likely they are to volunteer and to invest with each other. So America doesn't have as many social services as other first world countries because Americans are the most diverse of the first world countries. And generally speaking, Americans don't want socialized medicine and you know, high social service investment because they believe that uh, a certain group will take you know, more than their share okay, of, of those social services. If you're investing for people like you, you're going to be much more favorably inclined towards social service spending. In more than 150 countries, the U.S. regularly ranks outside of the top 10 on that list. Meanwhile, Finland has ranked in the number one spot for the past five years. So, What if we took, say, just residents of Utah or just, say, residents of Oregon or Washington or Idaho or Iowa? I suspect we would find much higher rates of happiness than, say, residents of California or residents of Texas or or Georgia or Alabama or Florida, right? I suspect we would find that the least diverse parts of the United States have the highest happiness levels in a row. Other countries in the top 10 this year include Denmark, Iceland, Switzerland, and Luxembourg. So I asked Lori, what are these countries getting right about happiness? What are they doing to support and encourage happiness on a national level? It tends to be both cultural practices and structures within a society that tend to promote the sorts of behaviors that we've been talking about. Okay, so how about high social trust? I can go to a beach in Australia, I can leave my stuff, I can go swimming and come back, my stuff is still there. Okay, low crime rates, high social cohesion, high social trust. All right, there are certain types of diversity that uh, don't diminish social trust and social cohesion as much as other types of diversity. There are certain groups that tend to 
smash social cohesion, social trust. These are the groups with high crime rates. But uh, I suspect she's not going to talk about that. So take social connection. That's just easier. You know, like in Scandinavian countries, for example, where there are social spaces outside where you can gather, you know, work. You know what ruins social spaces outside where you can gather together? Predators, rapists, murderers, people who like to stab at people, right? Drug dealers, the scum of the earth, right? They ruin social spaces. When we allow illegal immigrants to come here, they bring their problems with them. They bring crime, right? They bring drugs. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good people. But people coming here as an act of, of, of crime, people who bring drugs and rape and murder and stabbing, right? They destroy public spaces. How are you going to enjoy public spaces when people are urinating and defecating on the street all around you, shooting up drugs, ripping people off, uh, you know, stealing, committing grievous bodily harm. How are you going to enjoy public spaces in those circumstances, Professor? Ends at 5 p.m. so people can get together. You know, they're culturally sanctioned, you know, social groups that hang out and like clubs and sports teams. Okay, socially sanctioned groups that can hang out together. So it sounds like you're saying the more you promote freedom of association, the happier people are going to get. Yes. On the other hand, the more civil rights you promote, the more unhappy people get. The more people are allowed to live, to hire, to rent, to hang out with the people of their own choice, right? The more freedom of association you have, and America had a ton more prior to the 1960s, the happier people are going to get. The more of a sense of agency they're going to get, right? The more civil rights you have, the less freedom of association you have, the more people will restrict themselves, the less time they will spend in public spaces if those public spaces are covered with feces, are drowning in urine, are filled with drug users and homeless and criminals, right? The less people are going to occupy those public spaces. But if you allow, say, blokes to associate just with blokes, but the service clubs that allow blokes just to associate with blokes, they've all been forcibly changed so that they have to admit women, and so men no longer have as much incentive to belong to them. And so there are fewer and fewer places where you can go just to be with people like you. And so people have fewer ties to others, they have fewer friendships, right? They have less social cohesion, less social trust, right? They, they do fewer things together. Right? They are less communally minded because all this was destroyed by massive amounts of immigration, legal and illegal, and a whole civil rights industrial complex, which has made it increasingly difficult to associate with the people you want to associate with. That's crushed happiness. Things like that, you know, much more so than you see in the United States. You know, there are cultural practices that are based on savoring and mindfulness. You know, think of... of you know what's hard to savor? You know, when it's hard to be mindful? When someone is defecating beside you in a public space. When there are open-air urinals. When there are open-air drug markets. When there's rampant crime. When you're afraid of your daughter or your sister or your friends getting raped. Right? Really hard to be mindful. It's really hard to savor, you know, a nice pastry when someone is defecating in the gutter outside the restaurant you're attending. 
practices like huga again in Scandinavian countries where even in the you know the depths of winter you're going to sit there and savor a candle or like some delicious pastry where you're really not just eating something delicious but really present with it in a different way and mm. so i think you know my read on what makes different cultures happier are they have cultural practices and structures you know even sometimes physical structures um within you know it's really hard to avoid to enjoy physical structures of communal space and those physical structures are contaminated by drug abuse, alcohol abuse, homeless, addicts, defecators, uh, street people who urinate everywhere. It's really hard to be mindful and to savor and to enjoy those public spaces. Countries that allow individuals to engage in these practices better. Um, one of my favorite examples of this comes from a lot of religious practices. Um, you know, I often get asked the question, are religious individuals happy? Ah, so about the only way you're able to associate with people like you is if you can do it under the rubric of religion, right? Call it religion and you get to associate with who you want to associate with, right? Join an Orthodox synagogue and you can just you know, primarily associate with, you know, fellow Jewish men who are okay with, you know, Orthodox Judaism or evangelical Christianity or Roman Catholicism or Islam, all right? If you if you meet under the rubric of religion, then you get to hang out with the types of people you want to hang out with. So you feel like uh, your culture has been taken away from you, that uh, you no longer have freedom of association. Find a religious expression of the type of people you want to hang out with and go hang out with them under the rubric of religion. Right? That works. And you don't have to believe anything to take advantage of that. And the answer is is yes, but with a caveat. It's not individuals with strong religious beliefs that are happier, you know, a belief in God or something like that. It's individuals who engage in religious services and practices. You know, so the Catholic who goes to church and, and donates at the you know annual Catholic charity, you know, the Buddhist who really commits to spending time meditating, um, you know, the Jewish individual who, you know, practices like Shiva where they're kind of helping out other folks or or like really obeys the Sabbath where they take time off once a week. Like it's these practices often that map onto the habits, you know, mindsets and behaviors that we know improve happiness. Those are what's kind of contributing to religious individuals feeling happier. So whenever I see America ranking so low on these kinds of happiness lists, it just makes me wonder, like, what are Americans doing wrong? What are we getting wrong when we think about happiness? We're not allowed freedom of association. We have astronomical rates of immigration. We have allowed our public spaces to be defiled. We are not punishing people who do antisocial things, and we're not rewarding people who do pro-social things. You know how you reward people doing pro-social things? You lower their tax rates. You know how you punish people who are doing antisocial things? You charge them with the appropriate crime, and you lock them up. Most importantly, you lock up the super predators who commit the overwhelming amount of violent crimes. And you keep them locked up until at least age 50. Yeah, I mean, I think one reason we're often shocked to see America so low on the list is that overall, you know, compared to a lot of other countries that are higher than us, we, we tend to be a pretty wealthy country. But in addition to our wealth, we're also a very unequally wealthy country. And inequ Oh, guess what? The more immigration you have, the more unequal. The more diversity you have, the less equal, because different peoples have different gifts. Looking at the chat, churches tend to be, you know, overwhelmingly of one race or ethnicity. Exactly. 
I barely go outside in my front yard anymore. I feel like my front yard doesn't even belong to me anymore. Yeah, if your front yard is being contaminated and desecrated by hostile people, it doesn't. Nothing to lose, nothing to do. My city is better in colder months. Yeah, the uh, the more criminally inclined go out less into public spaces in colder months. Yeah, why would you want to volunteer in a community that uh, is not like you? Foreign invaders do not make good friends. You know, sh- shoving civil rights ideas, you know, the latest sexual perversion we now are supposed to celebrate, shoving that down your throat, right? Doesn't uh, doesn't exactly promote cohesion. Have I reviewed the Muhammad Ali speech on the birds? No, I haven't. I haven't even heard of it. Quality across countries seems to really map onto happiness in a negative way. So the more unequal a country is, the less happy they're on average going to be. So the more diverse a country is, apparently the less happy it's going to be. And this is not one-to-one. There are certain types of diversity that work pretty well. Right? Sydney is incredibly diverse. Sydney is a city that seems to you know, work out pretty well. And I think if you think about how much the United States culturally prioritizes some of the things we've been talking about, like not so much, you know, exercise relative to a country that's, you know, biking like Scandinavia, like not so much, you know, social connection, right? These kinds of practices where these things matter a lot. I think in more rural communities, these things are more prioritized than they often are in big cities, you know, time off, right? Americans are notorious for not taking their vacations. Again, relative to other similarly wealthy countries, Americans like leave vacation hours on the table that they simply just don't take. And so, well, it's hard to exercise right without interacting with other people if it's dangerous to go jogging in your community right that's going to retard exercise people generally speaking want to do things like exercise together with others if getting to your gym is an unpleasant experience then people are going to you know go less often to the gym so looking at the chat on Rumble. We are live on Rumble. we got five viewers right now live on Rumble. T.L. Chandler says, we are one. Nobody is safe without everyone else. Well, how do we build on that feeling? All right? Being connected with other people is an incredibly powerful experience. But in America today, we are celebrating diversity, which means we celebrate that we have less in common with other people. Why are we celebrating that it's wonderful that we have less and less in common with other people. If you can't even speak the same language, right? how are you going to build anything? I remember when the mayor of Los Angeles, Antonio Villaragosa, came to Sinai Temple in Westwood, and he was speaking from the podium, and he encouraged us to go out there and speak to someone who doesn't speak your language. How on earth can you speak to someone if you don't even share a common language? If you don't even have things like Christmas in common, if you, if you don't have you know, holidays in common, if you don't have religion in common, if you don't have, say, a Bible in common, if you don't have values in common, if you don't have commitments in common, if you don't have ethnicity or race or outlook or culture, you know, if you have very little in common, how are you going to bond with other people? I think culturally, the United States is often prioritizing a lot of, from the evidence-based perspective, we would say, is the wrong kind of stuff to feel happier. We're a really consumerist society. We like to buy stuff. Maybe we prioritize our own safety. You have to work harder 
to try to get safety in the United States of America because we don't have the same safety that other first world nations have. We don't afford the same social welfare provisions because Americans feel that you know one group will disproportionately take from social welfare and not contribute as much in taxes. Not all groups contribute equally, right? Overwhelmingly, whites and Asians and Jews pay far more in taxes than they take out in social services. Other groups take out far more in social services than they pay in taxes, right? So when you have groups like Jews, Asians, and whites who are overwhelmingly paying the vast majority of taxes and comparatively taking less out in social welfare spending, right, how are you going to push you know, new social welfare programs to create you know, safe spaces, to create you know, public health, to create you know, nice public facilities, if those public facilities are going to be consistently used and abused and trashed by people who don't pay much in taxes and are overwhelmingly taking out you know, disproportionate amounts of social welfare. It's not going to happen. And buying stuff just doesn't increase happiness in the way that we expect. So how can we force or encourage some kind of culture shift in America? I think that's really the big question, right? We're in this country. We're in this culture. We're swimming in it. It's making certain demands of us. And as much as we can cultivate our own good practices as individuals, what can we be doing or encouraging on a societal level? Yeah, well, I think we all wind up controlling a lot more of like simple local cultures than we think. You know, many people are involved in work organizations or church organizations or friend groups or family structures, right? Like what can you do in those tinier structural units to embody some of these practices? You know, maybe you need to bring back, you know, saying gratitude before a meal in your family or making sure phones get put away so people are present or, you know, forced social time. I think, you know, one thing that the pandemic and having the kids at home taught us, you know, they're like off and challenging things about that but a lot of families will self-report like wow we had more family time and that actually felt good right yeah. you know i want to yeah. keep going with that right so i think in these local structural units we can sort of make some of these direct it's a lot easier to build on that if you have things in common for example you practice the same religion with other members of your family a lot easier to have family time a lot easier to have scheduled dinners Right? A lot easier to participate in shared activities if you belong to the same church or the same synagogue. All right? If you, you know, have similar practices, similar values, you know, similar upbringings, if you have a lot in common with your neighbors, it's a lot easier to do things with them changes you know that's easier than you know doing that at the countrywide level but all of us are voting and we could vote for practices that allow us to engage in these things you know public parks and social spaces you know reductions on the amount of time that people are working in the uk right now they're really trying out with more seriousness a four-day work week um, as we speak this is kind of getting put into action you know what yeah, would that look right. like you know in the united states so if it's not safe and pleasant to go into public spaces and you work a four-day work week, right? You're not going to become more public-spirited. You're not going to spend more time in, in public spaces if those public spaces spaces are filled with urine and feces and are not being policed and people who are doing bad antisocial things are not being public punished, right? You're not going to spend a lot more time, you know, collaborating with uh, people you don't know very well, right? People need to feel safe before anything good can happen. Until people feel safe, you're not going to have happiness. You're not going to have collaboration. You're not going to have social trust and social cohesion. You're not going to build things together. Right? 
safety first, law enforcement first. You've got to put away the super predators, the 1% of the population that commits the overwhelming amount of violent crime. That should be put away, put away for decades. Um, and, you know, taking seriously that, you know, everybody has the privilege to kind of engage with this stuff. You know, the inequality we experience in the U.S. is often thought about in terms of inequality in wealth and income, which obviously is a big issue. But there's lots of evidence from people like Ashley Willens that inequalities in wealth wind up also being strong inequalities in terms of people's time famine, that low-income individuals tend to be really time famished. Low-income people tend to be really time famished. That, that's not my life experience. My life experience is that people who earn over six figures tend to work a lot harder and a lot more hours than poor people who are on social welfare, Right. The poorer you are, the more hours of TV you watch. So don't talk to me about the, the poor people being time famished. famished right? People earning a million dollars a year you know, tend to be working 60 plus hours a week. Uh, people who get their primary income from social welfare tend to watch six, eight, ten hours of, of TV a day and, and play video games. That doesn't ring, this part of her analysis doesn't ring true to me. And in her hand, some of the evidence suggests that it's really the time famine that's doing a real hit on the well-being of low-income individuals, maybe even more so than the wealth famine, right? So finding ways to get people a little bit more time and to build that into our societal structures, I think, could have a huge effect on people's overall well-being. Okay, so... You know, what's the why? There's some some good points here that uh, this professor is making, but she sounds incredibly disconnected from the real world. Reasonable and responsible says, do any of these self-righteous scolds lecturing us on the joys and enlightenment of diversity move into diverse neighborhoods? Do they send their children to diverse public schools in uh, various ghettos to integrate them, to really get a sense of the joy of of diversity? Uh, Here's a good point about genre errors. This is Professor Christine Hayes at uh, Yale University. In a few weeks when we consider the book of Joshua and its story of Israel's lightning invasion of the land of Canaan. The archaeological record just doesn't support such a a story. Still, uh, many people have clung to the idea of the Bible as a historically accurate document, many times out of ideological necessity. Many fear that if the historical information in the Bible isn't true, then the Bible is unreliable as a source of religious instruction or inspiration. And that's something they don't want to give up. And this is all really a very unfortunate and heavy burden to place on this fascinating little library of writings from late antiquity. People who equate truth with historical fact will certainly end up viewing the Bible dismissively as a naive and unsophisticated web of lies, since it is replete with elements that cannot be literally true. But to view it this way is to make a genre mistake. Shakespeare's Hamlet, while set in Denmark, an actual place, is not historical fact. But that doesn't make it a naive and unsophisticated web of lies. Okay, this is really important. Genre errors happen all the time. Like, you shouldn't expect scholarship from a pundit, right? You you shouldn't expect a, a rabbi to be an expert in biology. You shouldn't expect an expert in physics to be an expert in Talmud. Right. So, you know, what's the genre that we're working in? Should we look to the Bible for historical truth or should we look to the greatest historical works for historical truth and look to the Bible for religious teachings? Because we accept when we read or watch Hamlet that it is not a work of historiography, a work of writing about history. It is a work of literature. 
And in deference to that genre and its conventions, we know and accept that the truths it conveys are not those of historical fact, but are social, political, ethical, existential truths. And the Bible deserves at least the same courteous attention to its genre. The Bible doesn't pretend to be, and it shouldn't be read as what we would call objective history. And to see the scare quotes, you should be looking up there so you see the scare quotes. Objective history. In other words, perhaps a bare narration of events. Um, to be sure, we do find that some events that are mentioned in the biblical text correlate to events that we know of from sources outside the Bible. So, for example, Pharaoh Shishak's invasion of Palestine in 924. This is mentioned in the biblical text. It's mentioned in the Egyptian sources. There's a nice correlation. Right. So just because it's in the Bible, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Right. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it's wrong. Right? There's plenty in the Bible that is grounded in history. The Bible is just not a work of some individual's fantasy. The destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722, uh, the capture of Jerusalem in 597, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 586. These are all recorded in the biblical text, and they are in Assyrian and Babylonian records as well, as well as other events from the period of the monarchy. So as a result, because of these correlations, many scholars are willing to accept the general biblical chronology of the period from the monarchy on. Starting about 1,000 on, they accept that general chronology, the sequence of kings and battles and so on. So she's talking about from about... Uh, year 1000 before the common era about 3000 years ago talking about the period of the monarchy from king david to king solomon onwards but ultimately it is a mistake i think to read the bible as a historical record the bible is literature its composition is influenced and determined by literary conventions and goals now of course we all know that there is no such thing as purely objective purely objective history so, yeah, you don't read an electricity bill the same way you read a love letter. You shouldn't read journalism the same way that you read scholarship. So when you're reading a document, ask, you know, what genre is this, right? The Bible is not to be read the same way you read the New York Times. So what's the genre? Who's the author? Who's he writing for? Right? What's the, what's the propagandistic or the literary purpose of this document? Anyway, we have no direct access to past events. We only ever have mediated access. So these are the same tools that I use to try to interpret the, the news. I try to decode news reports. In material archaeological remains that yield information to us only after a process of interpretation, or in texts that are themselves already an interpretation of events and must still be interpreted by us, the biblical narrative is an interpretation of events that were held by centuries-long tradition to be meaningful in the life of the people. And to the biblical narrators, these events, known perhaps from ancient oral traditions, pointed to a divine purpose. And the narrative is told to illustrate that basic proposition. The biblical narrative... Right. The biblical narrative is to illustrate God's purpose in the world. Right. That's the perspective of the, the, the Bible and, and the authors. It's not to teach us about geology or about biology about history is to teach us about God moving in the world. Narrators are not trying to write history as a modern historian might try to, to write history. They are concerned to show us what they believe to be the finger of God in the events and experiences of the Israelite people. Uh, one scholar, Mark Brettler, whose name I've also put up here, um, Mark Brettler notes that in the Bible, the past is refracted through a theological lens, if not a partisan political ideological lens. But then all ancient historical narrative is written that way, and one could argue all contemporary. So almost all narratives come with a partisan lens. Not just ancient narratives, contemporary narratives, New York Times narratives, my narratives, your narratives. Every historical narrative is written that way. 
with so when you get a narrative and you can identify its partisan lens when you can get its ideological point and that narrative contains information that contradicts the narrative point the partisan lens then you're more likely dealing with information that's true so if people tell you a story to try to convince you to do something but they include information that undercuts the narrative that information is more likely to be true with due caution we can still learn things from texts ancient and modern we can still learn things about israel's history from the biblical sources just as classical historians have learned a great deal about classical history greece and rome despite or through the tendentious partisan and ideologically motivated writings of classical writers so christine hayes a fascinating woman she's not jewish she has no inclination towards converting to judaism but she's one of only two i believe academic scholars of jewish text including the talmud who who are not jewish usually when a non-jew becomes fascinated by jewish text such as the talmud and the rabbinic writings they they end up converting so our discussion of the patriarchal stories is going to bear um all of these considerations in mind we're not going to be asking whether these stories are historically accurate i'm going to assume they are not And once we rid ourselves of the burden of historicity, we're free to appreciate the stories for what they are. Powerful, powerful narratives that must be read against the literary conventions of their time and whose truths are social, political, moral, and existential. So what are these truths? We'll begin to answer this question. Begin to answer this question. You'll spend the rest of your life. So, I don't know if she has children, but I'm going to guess that if she does have children, that they are above average in intelligence, that they are above average in sociability that they are above average in verbal IQ that they are above average in learning foreign languages that they are more likely than average to be university professors or some other high IQ occupation finishing the process of answering this question but we'll begin by identifying some by no means all of the major themes of Genesis 12 through 50 and we're going to begin with the story of Terah and his family This is a story that's marked by the themes of divine command and divine promise. Now the biblical writer represents the emigration of Terah's son Abram whose name will be changed to Abraham so sometimes I'll say one and sometimes the other but they represent his emigration as divinely commanded. It's the first step in a journey that will lead ultimately to the formation of a nation in covenant with God. And first we meet our cast of characters. This is in Genesis 11 verses 26. Right, you you want a life with meaning about joining a tribe that uh acts and and believes and has rituals around fulfilling a covenant with God. I mean, Jewish life is incredibly intense from orthodox life to secular life. It is competitive, it is intense, it it is filled with other people, it is incredibly connecting you, to to other people. You have your own state, the Jewish state of Israel. Uh, it's been just an incredible ride that I've had since converting to Judaism back in 1993 7 on through chapter 12 verse 3 Now these are the generations of Terah Terah begot Abram, Nahor and Haran and Haran begot Okay so some good stuff there Christine Hayes has a whole series on the Pentateuch and uh, she's a professor of rabbinics at Yale University All right good article here Jack Shaper some common sense time to close down the Elon Musk circus The press has been falling for the Twitter owners antics for too long. So almost every day we're seeing Elon Musk said this, Elon Musk is is doing that. So 
Jack Schaefer makes the point, having been played to Elon Musk's advantage so many times, you would think reporters and editors would drop a few ice cubes in the hot news about Elon Musk that he gins up every 15 minutes and serves it. All right. But no, journalists continue to gulp down Elon Musk bait like undiscerning bottom-feeding river carp. At least when they covered Donald Trump's every burp and fart at great length on page one, reporters had an excuse. You know, he held the powers of the presidency. Well, what does Elon Musk have to compare to that? So four years ago, Jack Schaefer proposed that the press tame their obsession with every Trump utterance by running a daily column on the inside pages headline, Stuff That Trump Said. So to record his various PR blitzes, succinctly report them out in length only if he actually does something rather than just talk about it. So since Trump left the White House, the establishment press has largely demoted his truth, social postings, and rally provocations to a status even lower than stuff Trump said, because he currently has almost no power to turn his words into action. So maybe we should confine Elon Musk's incitements to a similar stuff Musk said, right? This would put him on notice that reporters would no longer bestow automatic war-to-war coverage on him and no longer cover him just because he damns and harasses the press. It would deny the barrel roller the audience he craves. It would deter him from saying something one day, reversing it the next just to win coverage. And it would free reporter from the short choke chain they have allowed Musk to put on them, freeing them up to do more meaningful work. So the press corps has a duty to tell audiences things they don't know. So without spending another column inch on Elon Musk, we can all agree that Elon Musk is a rich publicity hound who goads reporters almost daily with his flim-flam stunts, promises, and predilections. So his antics, like those of Donald Trump, deserve some coverage, but maybe for the interim it should be with a massive soundproof blanket to muffle his daily inconsequential brain. So most of what's in the news is not important. Most of the things that grab our attention are not important. Most of the things, you know, flowing across a TV news screen are not important. Most of the things in your daily newspaper or on news radio or on talk radio are not important. So we're just continually inundated with with tidal waves of trivia. But the important is really compelling. It's uh, really dominating the news. So the news, the news is a business of curating decisions made by bureaucracies, right? So what bureaucratics, you know, what bureaucrats hand down is not necessarily true, but the press can simply dish it up and report it because they're not going to get sued. Right? The press can report that uh, a jury trial has reached a verdict, right? That's the outcome of a bureaucratic decision. The press reports that, uh, the Dow Jones, right? The the bureaucracies that uh, operate the, the Dow Jones right, has reached you know, a certain level. But uh, everything is the outcome of bureaucratic processes. That is what consumes the news media. But what's really going on in the world is often the very opposite of bureaucratic processes. Right? You often learn much more profound truths about life from your friends, from your neighbors, from chance encounters than you do in the news. Right? But news is a business that requires that it primarily publish and report things that won't get it sued because getting sued is incredibly expensive. Okay, here's uh, part two, the cult of uh, cold step programs. 
Episodes of Sounds Like a Cult are solely host opinions and quoted allegations. The content here should not be taken as indisputable. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. I want to start off by saying that I think they do a lot of good and can really help addicts and people who are struggling with addiction. However, there are some strange culty-like dynamics, especially when you are abroad. I was going to a 12-step program for sex and love addiction in New York and found it really inclusive, warm, welcoming, and super helpful to me at the time. I then moved to Europe and I noticed that they followed a different kind of protocol, which I thought was also a bit strange to begin with. I had always thought that 12-step programs more or less followed the same uh, regimen. However, SLAA in Europe operates by the HOW system, honesty, openness, and willingness. When I joined the HOW 12-step program for sex and love addiction in Germany, I picked up a sponsor naturally. My sponsor then proceeded to tell me that I was not allowed to take my antidepressants. First of all, it's incredibly dangerous to just stop taking any sort of medication. And second of all, I didn't see how it affected my issues surrounding codependency. She even pointed out in the handbook that people going through the first three steps should abstain from alcohol and any other drug. Well, to me, taking a medication is not a drug, so I refused naturally. She begrudgingly obliged, but I know a lot of people in the program. Okay, so the bigger picture here is that Judaism in Sydney, Australia is quite different from Judaism in Melbourne which is quite different from Judaism in Los Angeles and New York and Jerusalem and B'nai B'rath. So we hear 12-step programs or Orthodox Judaism, and depending on time and place, it will be completely different. And so there's no human institution that is not vulnerable to abuse, to predators, to you know, antisocial personalities, to people in charge, you know, having you know, all sorts of major character defects or personality disorders. And this is an important point that, uh, say, SLA, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, is a very different program in Europe than it is, say, in Los Angeles. And the program in Los Angeles is different from the, the program in, in the Midwest or the Bible Belt. ...who actually stopped taking antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication. I am a clinical social worker, and many years ago I worked in a substance use treatment program, and it was 12-step based. I cannot possibly express how unhealthy the environment was, yes, due to... A What's the longest I've gone without checking the news? So recently, uh, I mean, in my life in the last 10 years, the best I can remember, it'd be only on Jewish holidays. So if there's, a, say, a three, day, three days of Jewish holy days, I haven't checked the news for that. But for me, it's a tremendous pleasure. I, I subscribe, you know, $150 a month for all these news publications, but I don't confuse what's in the news with reality. And I don't generally consume news that is served up, say, by the TV or by radio, right? I choose the news that, that I consume. I'll read a New York Times article here, Washington Post article here, a blog post there, right? I don't allow the news media bureaucracies to determine, you know, what's important for me. So I, I don't want them curating my news. I spend very little time with TV news and radio news, but I forage around various news sources to try to uncover what uh, I understand is is important or compelling to me. Lack of oversight on the part of the hospital system under which it was based, but also because of the guy that ran it. It was the most perfect and terrible mix of somebody with an insane personality disorder, a history of substance use himself, which... Okay, we've got a chat going here on Rumble. T.L. Chandler says, Spoken words were never meant to be a part of our unity. Actions, feelings, thoughts were enough to get things done. Actions were enough to show intent. Babel was the key or the lesson, if you will. 
that they didn't speak the same language, but that seems to be the very opposite of your point. With Babel, they didn't speak the same language, and so they fell apart. So generally speaking, it's hard to have sustained interactions with someone with whom you don't share a common language. P.L. Chandler says, look at how much we understand when interacting with an infant or a puppy. No words, just actions and thoughts. Yeah, but most people don't find that compelling. Right? That's very much the exception. Right? Mothers who only interact with infants all day long, it tends to drive them crazy. Right? We have ideas, we have thoughts that are formed with words. Right? When you think in one language, you have different thoughts than when you think in a different language. So if you don't have a language in common with people, it's going to significantly reduce the power of that connection. And if you don't have language in common, if you don't have ethnicity in common, if you don't have culture or religion in common, if you don't have a profession in common, if you don't have an upbringing in common, it's going to be increasingly hard to form bonds with people. So if you're a salesman, right, you want to connect with people, your living depends upon connecting with people. What are you encouraged to do? You're encouraged to form connections and similarity as quickly as possible. Oh, you used to live in Sacramento. I used to live in Sacramento. You like the Dallas Cowboys. I like the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, you read the New York Times. I read the New York Times. You were just in Australia. I was in Australia 15 years ago, right? Salesmen have to connect to survive. And the way that you connect is by finding things in common. It's not by finding things where you're different, right? Finding all sorts of areas where you're completely different does not generally bring people together. What brings people together are having things in common. And so this celebration of diversity, which is celebrating how little in common we have with each other, is incredibly self-defeating. You want as many things in common with your fellow citizens as possible. Right? A football team is stronger if it can say the Lord's Prayer together, right? if it can have things in common, if it can you know, share a, a pastor or a priest who, who comes to speak to the team. So, yeah, there are exceptions where you can get along, you can have sex with people with whom you don't share the same language, you can have some pleasurable interactions with an infant or a puppy, but your most meaningful interactions are going to come from people who speak your language, right? If all you interact with are puppies and infants, you're going to go mad as an adult. Very few people are suited for a life where they're just primarily interacting with, with, with puppies and with infants. We need people who speak our language. And I know someone from Australia, how much joy I get when I'm in America meeting someone else from Australia because we, we speak a common language and we have common cultural references and we have a similar sense of, of humor and there's just an immediate sense of ease that I have when I meet a fellow Australian, or I meet someone from England, all right? England's the home country. The, the English have you know, a very fine sense of humor, very, tend to be very verbally gifted, uh, tend to be you know, a lot of you know, very courteous people, just uh, you know, funny people. There's like a sense of ease that I have when I talk to the English or when I talk to Australians or South Africans because of how much we have in common. Uh, on the other hand, speaking to Uruguayans, it's a bit more of a challenge. I was walking around Sydney and I was 
you know, exploring these rocks and uh, going around various rock formations. And I ran into a couple of blokes from Uruguay and we had a pleasant enough chat because they spoke you know, decent English. But they had to, you know, put quite a bit of effort into speaking English. And I had to put quite a bit of effort into you know, dealing with their imperfect English. And I didn't have the desire to continue the, the social interaction which I often do when I meet, you know, a fellow Aussie or someone where we share a similar profession or we have, you know, we're, we're both Jewish or, you know, we both love reading English literature or we, we both, you know, spent uh, time in Los Angeles, right? The more I have in common, the more incentivized I feel to build on connections with people. Have a look at the chat. Common ground, connections, connections are everything. I made my first by keeping that in mind, made it my business to mirror others whose cash I was seeking. Yes, that's good business. And uh, 40 getting the beef organ sweats. Well, it's uh, quite humid here. Uptight people normally get their asses kicked, yet we want to feel at ease with other people. All right, let's go back to Sounds Like a Cult, which is a pretty fun podcast by a couple of uh, lefty girls. does not preclude you from being a good therapist, but for this guy, absolutely did. It was just a disaster in this program, like all the time. Laws were being broken, people were being exploited. I mean, the field of substance use is kind of young, and now we have really good treatment for it, but there are so many programs across the nation that are still left in this 50s kind of white man world. But suffice it to say that in this hospital system where we were located, we were the outliers. We were, you know, we were the substance use unit. Don't question the substance use unit. So nobody questioned it. And when Everyone needs to be questioned, right? Everyone needs to be open to critique and accurate criticism. Accurate criticism makes me better, makes 12-step programs better. It makes non-12-step programs better. It makes substance abuse programs better, right? You need robust conversation. You need free speech. People need to be able to criticize the powers that be. You need to criticize, critique, and challenge orthodoxies, right? Without that kind of open dialogue and freedom to criticize, we, we stultify. Okay, sounds this like This is a cult. Sounds Like a Cult, a show about the modern day cults we all follow. I'm Amanda. Okay, fun, fun podcast. Two quick uh, news items that grabbed my attention. I saw the New York Times was reporting on Benjamin Netanyahu, who's formed a new right wing government in Israel. So this is how the New York Times called it. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who needed the support of far right factions to return to the prime minister's office. Notice how news media never talks about far left factions. It's always far right factions somehow. The left, there's no such thing as a far left. Now they want to curb the powers of the judiciary, giving rise to fears about an erosion of democracy. There's nothing inherent in democracy, right? Majority rule that uh, correlates with the powers of the judiciary. You can have a more powerful judiciary, a less powerful judiciary. That has nothing to do with democracy. If democracy decides that judiciary needs to have its powers trimmed, that is not reducing democracy. It may be reducing judicial oversight, may come with other downsides, but it doesn't threaten or erode democracy. We have so much loose, shallow, 
inaccurate conversation about the erosion of democracy. And it's almost never actually about eroding democracy. It's about eroding the power of institutions that the liberal left controls. Right? So when you hear in the news media about erosion of democracy, the threats to democracy, challenges to democracy, the reduction of democracy, it's almost always with regard to institutions that the liberal left controls and they are concerned that these institutions will have less power. So when the people vote, right, you can't get more democratic than that. And they vote for Amendment 2, say, in Colorado, which would allow people to not hire someone or not rent to someone if they're gay. All right, that's the will of the people and the left cheers on when the judiciary overwills the will of the people. It says it's unconstitutional. So you would think that the left might you know, bewail the, the reduction in democracy. No. When the Californians voted overwhelmingly for Proposition 187 to deny social welfare services to illegal immigrants, that too was overturned by the court. So you didn't get all these long think pieces about the erosion of democracy when people vote for what's seen as a right-wing cause, right? People vote for a right-wing cause such as banning gay marriage, right? And then the people's referendum decision is overturned by the courts, but then you never hear left-wing news media lamenting the erosion of democracy. And when you hear... In the news about the erosion of democracy, it's always with regard to institutions that the left controls and dominates, and that those institutions are losing power, and they equate that with the erosion of democracy. And then I saw Baked Alaska a couple of weeks ago said, I can't believe I'm going to prison for an NFT salesman. Talking about Donald Trump. Well, Donald Trump did not ask Baked Alaska and his ilk to do anything illegal on January 6th or any other time. And two, Trump is not primarily an NFT salesman. Right? That's a tiny part of it. It's like you can choose the most ridiculous parts of me and then just you know, label me by the you know, most unappetizing, unappealing, disgusting, repellent, antisocial things that I've done. But that's only a part of what I've done. You know, I've done all those horrible things. I've also done some, some good things. So this tendency that people have to just reduce someone to their most unappealing, unappetizing, antisocial, most repellent, actions and then label them as, as though that, that one you know, stupid action defines them. I find that reductionist. I don't like it. People are complicated. People do good and bad. Montel, author of the book, Cultish, the Language of Fanaticism. I'm Issa Medina and I'm a comedian. Every week on our show, we discuss a different fanatical fringe group from the cultural zeitgeist, from CrossFit to the Kardashians, to try and answer the big question. This group sounds like a cult, but is it really? To join our cult and see culty memes and BTS pics, follow us on Instagram at Sounds Like a Cult Pod. I'm on Instagram at Amanda underscore Montel. And I'm right. on Instagram trying to grow. Hmm. We up. have been itching to dive back into this week's topic, the cult of 12 step programs, which is something we covered in season two, but we were only able to tackle it from the perspective of our guest, who has had a very positive experience in this group, like AA and OA, groups for people recovering from addiction. Okay, the chat says, some people make me sick. I just break away. I try to keep toxic soul suckers at a distance. But good people make you feel good. Bad people make you feel bad. If people are making you feel bad, yeah, distance yourself. Reduce your proximity to them. Reduce the number of interactions you have with them. Reduce the length of the interactions you have with them. Reduce the intensity of the interactions you have with them. So turn people up or down, depending on if they're good for you or bad for you. If they're bad for you, and hold them at arm's length. 
reduce the amount of times you spend with them, the amount of time, how often you spend time with them, the proximity, like shift to the phone instead of in person, and reduce the intensity of your interactions. But there are also lots of folks who have had culty experiences in these 12-step program groups for the worse, and a bunch of listeners let us know that they wanted to hear these stories too. Right. There's no human institution. There's nothing that people have created whereby people have only had positive experiences. Like there are plenty of people who have wonderful experiences with Orthodox Judaism and other people for whom it's just been a horror show. Other people have had wonderful experiences with 12-step programs. For other people, it's a horror show. Some people have had wonderful experiences with Kundalini Yoga. I had good experiences with Kundalini Yoga. For other people, they got so deep into it, it ruined their life. So anything that human beings touch is going to have a downside and a dark side and a dangerous side. And fair enough, because we do too. Totally. I mean, I came to that recording that day ready to roast groups like Alcoholics Anonymous, etc. Because there are a lot of culty aspects of these groups for the better. You know, for some people like our guests, groups like AA and NA and OA really have saved their lives. And that's 100% valid. And we would never want to illegitimize their experience. And that's why we didn't on that day. You know, we just had an authentic conversation with yeah. someone from his perspective. But then we realized that there were other stories to tell about the Cult of 12-Step programs. And I already knew that. But in the conversation, I started to second guess myself. Like, maybe I've been too critical of these groups. Well, I also think, you know, we were approaching it from the perspective of one participant. So I don't think we didn't grill him. Like, I remember we really did grill him, but he, he just, was just good at responding. He was really good at responding because it was really in a de-escalating format. And that's what I... Right. So any in-group is going to have cultic aspects. And including 12-step programs, including churches, including stamp clubs. All right. Why cricket and America are made for each other. The world's second most popular sport and biggest sports market are about to meet. Pretty exciting here from The Economist. Christmas specials. Sports and identity. Batter up. Cricket is about to challenge baseball and maybe what it means to be American, too. By the middle of September, half a diamond was all that remained of the infield at the Air Hogs Baseball Stadium in Grand Prairie, Texas. The artificial turf was being carted away, the pitcher's mound was a crater, the dugout had been dug out. The stadium's tenant, the minor league team of the same name, disbanded in 2020, a victim of the pandemic. But on that Sunday, the Dallas-Fort Worth area of which Grand Prairie is part, thrummed with sports. In the car park across the road, souped-up cars were doing timed laps around a traffic cone circuit. By lunchtime, the nearby Olive Garden, a chain restaurant where a $25 meal supplies a day's calories, was full of diners in jerseys signalling their support for the Texas Rangers, the baseball team. At Boomer Jack's Grill and Bar that evening, half the acreage on the dozens of flat screens was given over to the Dallas Cowboys' first game of the American football season. That afternoon, northwest of Dallas, a dozen multimillionaires gathered at a 2,500-acre ranch. Horses bobbed in their stalls before the main house. At the back, manicured gardens were framed by rows of trees receding into the distance. Inside, around a Putinesque conference table, the men discussed their plans to bring a new sport to this sports-saturated country. When the Airhogs Stadium reopens in the spring, it will be the first home of Major League Cricket, or MLC. All the men were of Indian descent. They and their partners, who include the CEOs of Microsoft and Adobe, have put in $44 million.
and committed another $76 million to start the league. As owners of the first six franchises in Dallas, Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco, Seattle and Washington, D.C., they are betting that conditions are right to turn cricket, long seen as a baffling foreign game, into an American pursuit. The first season will run from July 13th to 30th. Most Americans may not take cricket seriously, and most of the cricketing world does not take America seriously, but in 2024 the country will co-host with the West Indies a Cricket World Cup, qualifying the American team automatically. USA Cricket, the governing body in America, wants to include cricket at the 2028 Olympics in Los Angeles. The world's biggest sports market and second most popular sport are about to discover what they really think of each other. Among cricket fans and pub quizzers, this fact is settled. The first cricket international ever was played between the United States and Canada in Manhattan in 1844. Canada won. Those of a nerdier bent also know that cricket was popular in antebellum America. The first recorded mention comes from Georgia in 17... So cricket used to be a bigger sport in America than baseball. So baseball only started rising to prominence after the Civil War. Prior to the Civil War, cricket was bigger in America than baseball. Uh, cricket, much more of an upper-class sport. So Steve Saylor talks about uh, talking to a half-black Irishman in 1982 about the World Cup of Soccer. And this half-black Irishman said to him, Soccer is for louts, right? I follow cricket. So one of the old saws is that uh, soccer is a gentleman's game you know, played by louts. And rugby is a loutish game played by gentlemen. So rugby is almost always a middle and upper class sport. Soccer is overwhelmingly a working class sport. Cricket is an upper class sport. The coach of the Socceroos, Australia's men's soccer team that was competed very successfully at the World Cup, he, he talked about that uh, the Socceroos are the, the primary sport that brings Australia together. Now, I think soccer is like the fifth most popular sport in Australia. But during those you know, heady days of the World Cup, yeah, there was a sense of Australia coming together for for uh, the national men's soccer team. Anyway, some fun comments on Steve Saylor's blog. Uh, one commenter says, The popularity of sports has little to do with the inherent quality of the sport to the degree that can never be defined. It's all about memories and tradition. So this bloke says, why do I love the Philadelphia Eagles? Because I remember watching Wilbur Montgomery drive a dagger into the Cowboys with a 40-yard TD run in the 1980 NFC Championship game with my grandpa. And I remember watching Deshaun Jackson run back a punt to beat the Giants in 2010 with my son. So I can recall dozens of good and bad sports memories, and they're always something that you know male family members and friends you know share in common. So cricket, for Americans, there are no memories or legends to recall. So that's a challenge to overcome. And then another bloke says, when I worked in the Middle East as an expat, TV programming came mainly from the UK, where cricket featured prominently. I was baffled by the game at first, but the player's skill and spectator enthusiasm made me take further notice once I understood the rules. And uh, they're not that hard to learn. My appreciation naturally increased, and I thoroughly enjoy the game. The curious who don't appreciate the game, try the 2020 game. That's a three-hour version of Twitter. It lacks the endurance and the strategy of a test match, which can go five days, but you can usually finish a T20 match in under three hours. So not one in a hundred Americans can explain pretty much anything that isn't shouted at them 24-7 by the mainstream media. But speaking as a native-born American, the scoring system in cricket is extremely simple. 
one run when the batsman switch places four runs if the batsman hits the ball along the ground and it goes over the boundary six runs if the batsman hits the ball over the boundary without it touching the ground so that's where you get the expression i hit him for six right that's that's the big score so cricket matches like a t20 match you'll have scores like 180 to 176 so a lot more scoring than in baseball but cricket was the most popular summer ball sport in colonial america How do we work chest bumps and 360-degree hop screens into cricket? So, this is The Economist. 1937 notes Tom Melville in The Tinted Field, A History of Cricket in America. Baseball remained in a distant second place until after the Civil War, writes John Thorne, the official historian of Major League Baseball, in Baseball in the Garden of Eden. Various reasons have been set forth for cricket's decline after the Civil War. One is that baseball was more conducive to battlefield conditions. It did not need a smooth batting surface. Another is that baseball was, then, a much shorter game. But above all, as Mr Melville writes, cricket failed in America because it never established an American character. What, though, gave baseball its American character? Scholars agree the sport... Well, anyway, we're going to have the World Series of Cricket going to be played in America. To replace red ones. For a sport thought of by non-fans as a bastion of obscure tradition, cricket has proved remarkably adaptable. Still, even ODIs were a whole day long. By the 21st century, that seemed a bit much. In the early 2000s, the English cricket board introduced a shorter form known as 2020 or T20, which took just three hours. It... And the question, did I ever go to the Magic Castle back in the day? I think I've been once. Uh magic and uh, fireworks aren't uh, particularly compelling or important to me was an instant success that was just the beginning of t20's rise in 2008 the indian cricket board launched the indian premier league or ipl a tournament of city or state-based franchises it borrowed heavily from americans so the indian premier league they have cheerleaders there's an australian all-rounder who just got a three million dollar contract to play in the Indian Premier League, which lasts about six weeks. So that's the, the most competitive, the highest paying T20 cricket league in the world. And there are all these uh, op-eds in the Sydney Morning Herald that I was reading this morning bemoaning all the players who are specialising in T20, which is the most popular form of cricket, instead of test cricket, where you play for your country or for your, for your state. But... Uh, Professional athletes are professionals, right? They're not like fans. They're going to go where the money is, and they should go where the money is. Right? They, they don't owe you or me anything. Right? If they can make more money playing T20 cricket, they shouldn't you know, sacrifice their earning to play the, the more traditional form of cricket for, for state or, or, or country. Right? They're professionals. They don't you know, care so much about the colour of the uniforms they wear, they, they should concentrate on that which earns them the most amount of money. Sports leagues, even importing cheerleaders from American football. As Tim Wigmore, a British sports journalist, put it in his book about T20, the IPL marked the Americanification of Indian cricket, sport as an international event with the best players from the world over, but with an Indian team always winning. And there's a great uh, documentary on the Indian Premier League following the perspective of one particular team that is on Netflix. This format spread, spawning the Caribbean Premier League. And there's a great 
series on Amazon, The Test, which is about the travails of Australia's test cricket team, 10-part series, and uh, season two drops, I think, January 14th. Looking forward to that. Australia's Big Bash and more. It is this model that the backers of MLC are adopting. So every afternoon and evening, there's a T20 match, Australia's Big Bash, which is probably the the third most competitive and uh, rich T20 cricket tournament. So it gets more more eyeballs than uh, Test cricket because it's it's much more compressed. It's much more exciting. So Australia is playing a Test cricket match against South Africa right now. They just finished day number one, but simultaneously the Big Bash is going on, and that will get a lot more viewers because it's so exciting. Re-importing to America what IPL adapted from it. Cricket and baseball have met in the middle on length, but cricket now provides far more action per minute. The average T20 sees between 250 and 400 runs. Much else has changed in the century and a half since cricket fell out of favour with Americans, not least the meaning of Americans. In 1920, the United States was 89.7% white, 9.9% black and rigidly segregated. Major League Baseball did not see its first black player until 1947. Today, white and black people together make up only 73% of the population, and people with American passports speak every major language. Baseball's biggest star is Otani Shoei, a Japanese phenomenon so intent on playing in America that he sacrificed enormous sums to move. And I think the Premier League, the most competitive and, and rich soccer league, the, the Premier League of, of England, most of the players come from overseas. Uh, 40% of the players are black. The Premier League is more rigorous, more physically demanding now than ever before. So you can measure that by how much of the match players are running at over, say, 15 kilometers an hour. It's much more competitive, much more grueling now than ever before, and much more international and much more black. promise of America, in many ways the whole point of America, is that anybody can be American. To an underappreciated degree, America has kept that promise. In 2019, there were 5.5 million South Asians in America, up from 2.2 million in 2000. Can anyone become an American? Is that really what America's all about? I guess I would hold much more with the perspective of the preamble to the United States Constitution that we're doing all this for the welfare of ourselves and our progeny, right? So I don't go along with this, America is primarily an idea. America is where I live, right? America is the most important country in the world. For me, as an American, that's where I live. Its welfare is vitally important to me. It's not just uh, something that the, the world can sample to, to whatever extent it moves them. To me, the United States of America is primarily about a concrete group of people who should only admit foreigners to the extent that they bring valuable skills or valuable resources that America needs. Otherwise, we have, what, 330 million Americans? Don't think we need any more immigration. Okay, back to Sounds Like a Cult quite liking this podcast. So they do programs on the court of plastic surgery, you know, the court of Starbucks, the court of the Kardashians, the court of Eucharist, the court of weddings, the court of celebrity doctors. 
I ultimately convinced me that it wasn't that culty because he wasn't offended by the questions that we were asking yeah. and his answers weren't cagey. Yeah. He was just really honest. He was just like, if you feel that like certain way, you can leave and mm -hmm. you can walk out of the program. No one is like making you be in the program. It was a really sound argument to me, but it's important to look at like specific stories and other things that people have talked about. We're excited to do this part too because I, I want to explore the other side of things. And it's really tricky because people who do believe that Alcoholics Anonymous and do I feel like a different person down under since nobody knows my past? I'm not known down under. Yes, I feel like a different person, but I feel like a different person in San Francisco than Los Angeles. I feel like a different person in Portland, Oregon. I feel like a different person in Vancouver, in New York City, in uh, Orlando or Tampa Bay. Like wherever you go, you feel different feelings. You think different thoughts as you change geography and change social setting and change who you're hanging out with. So, yeah, we're all different people in different contexts, right? I'm a different person talking to my brother than when I talk to my sister. I'm a different person talking to you. I'm talking to my best friend from childhood. I'm a different person talking to my rabbi than, you know, talking to my boss. I'm a different person talking to, you know, every single person in my life brings out different parts of me. I'm a different person in Tenham Sands as opposed to Sydney as opposed to Brisbane, I think wherever you go and whoever you're with is going to transform you. We're going to change. We're not the same person in every single place. Like geography and the company you keep is going to have a profound effect on me and on you. But I'll always, I'll still call Australia home. I love that song. Right, so I think as you get older, you tend to get more sentimental about the the group or the place that you were raised in or the country you were raised in, the community you were raised in. So Jews often become more ethnocentric as they age. I think most people tend to get more ethnocentric as they age. Groups like that have saved their lives might be triggered by criticism of these groups, but also J.F. Harris, who was the guest we had on the episode. Do I take on accents? No, I'm not terribly adept at accents. So I had a girlfriend who spoke like five or six languages. And she could move in and through different accents. And they're very skilled people at taking on different accents. I'm not one of them. So the Australian accent is very familiar to me. The British accent, a little less familiar. And the American accent, of course, most familiar of all. So I'm not completely immune to my accent changing depending on the company I'm keeping or wh where I am geographically or socially, but uh, I'm not the most adept at uh, switching in and out of different accents. So told me that a bunch of people reached out to him, people who like didn't know that they needed help. And they were like, thank you so much for that episode. Like it made me go seek help because they had really bad perceptions of Alcoholics Anonymous or 12-step programs. They thought they were culty. Yeah, yeah. So they didn't even want to go into them. And I do think that they are culty fundamentally and we'll walk through some reasons why, but I don't think that that is a reason not to try them. Yeah. I don't think like we talk about that all the time on the podcast. It's not necessarily a bad thing to be culty. Like there are live your life cults and there are watch your back cults. And at least how we've defined a watch your back is a group that you don't need to avoid at all costs. It's a yeah. group that might not be for everyone. In fact, it might be traumatizing for some people, but for some people it's great. And it's really up to the individual to determine what your limits are. Yeah. So we really just are. Yeah. So I was into Kundalini yoga. I paid a thousand dollars for unlimited Kundalini yoga. I had a great time. I enjoyed meeting people, but I did some research within a couple of months of joining this Kundalini yoga studio. And for many people that 
they'd say it ruined their lives. They got in deep and became a, a cult. And the, the way that you get deeper into Kundalini Yoga is that you take you know, level one teacher training. And then people would go on retreats and they'd take level two teacher training and it would take over their lives and they'd take on a special Kundalini Yoga name. All right, so you can do anything to access the, the level that I was practicing Kundalini Yoga. I didn't notice any negative effect on me, except I, I was trying too hard to keep up with other people in the class and I did all sorts of damage to myself and cost thousands of dollars in physical therapy to repair. So if you're someone who's highly susceptible to peer pressure, you're seeing other people doing all these crazy poses all around you and you feel in a need to keep up like I did, then you can seriously damage yourself in almost any yoga class. Like Westerners, generally speaking, are not well adapted to doing yoga, right? It's, it's not something you can just take up unless you tend to take very good care of yourself you don't feel compelled to keep up with what other people are doing in the class you do it very gently but for, for many westerners who don't have a background in yoga like doing yoga is incredibly dangerous there are so many thousands upon thousands upon thousands of serious injuries from from yoga if, if it's not you know part of the way you were raised it can be very very dangerous for you but Generally speaking, my two years in Kundalini Yoga were overwhelmingly a positive experience, but I didn't sign up for teacher training. Like, I didn't make it my life. Though I did once get up at 2 a.m. to go into the studio to celebrate Yogi Bhajan's birthday. And I, I brought, I brought a, a, a duvet and pillows and I just kind of lay in the studio and drifted in and out of sleep. I had to cover my hair. So... The, the evening yoga classes were you know, much more open to anyone, but the, the people who get up at 2 a.m., they were much more fervent, they were much more firm, they were much more religious in their devotion. So Yogi Bhajan you know, purported to have brought the, the secrets of 3HO, Happy, Healthy, Holy, from, from India and you know, developed this, this huge movement. They sell tea, they sell all sorts of vegetarian food. But you can... You can get sucked in and uh, joining a, a yoga studio or joining a 12-step program can you know, take over your life and you know, lead you in negative directions. Though at a different level of interaction, it can be good and healthy for you. So there's no guaranteed route that's always going to be good for you. I didn't have a, a yoga guru, but I did have a teacher who was quite close with Guru Jagat. And uh, I gave her like some free Alexander Technique lessons as I was apprenticing to teach the Alexander Technique. And then she became a major, major uh, Kundalini Yoga guru, had tens upon tens of thousands of, of social media followers. And uh, she was accused of operating her own cult. And then she died unexpectedly after ankle surgery a year ago. Glenn Medley says, I prefer pushing myself. I've done yoga long enough to know the risk. Well, if you've been doing yoga and you've not been injuring yourself, then it sounds like you're living in reality. What are the criticism that William F. Buckley's accent was affected? So being authentic doesn't make you a better person or more likely to be a righteous person. But if you are demonstrably fake or put on and inauthentic, people are going to be less likely to like you. But a lot of a lot of crows are crowing. They start crowing about 4 a.m. and they resume crowing just before sunset. Now, there used to be all these flying foxes going overhead, but I haven't seen any flying foxes. They must have 
change their direction. So yeah, people sense whether you're authentic or inauthentic and they respond much more favorably if you're being fair dinkum, if you're being authentic. Now, being authentic doesn't make you more moral or more truthful or more nice or kind, but it just tends to relax people. And so an affected accent like that of William F. Buckley right, is going to rub some people much more the wrong way than others, right? Some people are much more put off by that which is fake or put on or being done for dramatic effect than, than others. Was she a femme fatale? Well, she was... She was a very nice yoga teacher. She was very easy to talk to. I remember when I shared the New York Times article, she was my, my Facebook friend. She, she, I, brought, I brought people close to me to some of the classes and uh, she would talk about astrology quite a bit. And it didn't bother me, but for other people, they thought, you know, what is this nonsense? They, they took you know, offense to Guru Jagat going on about astrology. Uh, I, I thought it was, it was harmless. Glib Medley, do you ever get 40 soupy sales vibes? What are soupy sales vibes? I got to know. I'm making this part two in the spirit of balance. <laughs> yeah, we love balance. Like we've said, I mean, we're literally taking this five-week quote-unquote break, but still <laughs> doing an episode every week so that yeah. we can dive deeper because in this 12-step program, like we didn't have that much time to do deep research. Yeah, we just, I mean, that's, that's the long of the short of it is that we, we found this guest who was hard to find. Because you can't approach people and be like, <laughs> hey, heard you're an alcoholic, want to be our guest. And sure, there are a lot of people who are public alcoholics, but a lot of those people are hard to access. Yeah. And here was someone who fell into our lap who was like, I'm willing and open to talk about it. And I walked away from that interview being like, I think that was balanced, but we now realize that it wasn't as balanced as it possibly should be. And because this is really sensitive subject matter, we just want to make sure that we're approaching it from as many sides as we're able to also reminding people to remember that this is an opinion entertainment podcast this is not investigative journalism we want to do these topics justice but you know we'll link some resources on our instagram for those who want to take a more formal dive into the subject so a lot of the info in this episode comes from a qualitative study of the efficacy of AA specifically. The study is titled Exiting Alcoholics Anonymous Disappointed, a qualitative analysis of the experiences of ex-members of AA. This was published by some mental health experts at the University of Sydney. We'll share it on our Instagram for those interested in diving deeper. Existing research about the efficacy of AA has honestly been a lot like our prior episode. It's really reflected the experiences of people who have had positive experiences in AA, and that's great for them. And it honestly feels validating to us, like, because even scientific qualitative studies conducted at universities have focused on people in AA. Yeah, that makes sense, especially because, like, I feel like their whole program functions around. So by and large, there hasn't been that much academic research into 12-step programs around not just like there hasn't been that much academic research into voter fraud speaking about aa outside of aa so if you're a person who left alcoholics anonymous then you're not going to talk negatively about it because you don't want to affect other people's chance that it could work for them totally and i think that naturally if you haven't had an experience like this yourself you wouldn't even realize that people have defected from this group and had negative experiences so this so can yoga meet any needs that Alexander Technique can't meet? Yes, many. So 
yoga is something that is relatively cheap and easy to go do on a social basis. So most people who want to do yoga or want to do Alexander Technique or want to do exercise want to do it socially. They want to connect with other people. It's a lot easier to get together to go to a yoga class than to get together to go to an Alexander Technique class. So I would tell my clients, you're free to bring other people to our session. No, no extra charge. So occasionally someone will bring a friend or, or two friends. So I will teach three people Alexander Technique over the course of yoga instead of just one. But there are a lot more yoga classes. And so you can go to a yoga class and you feel like you've done something for your health. You feel like you've done something that's good for you. You've done something social. So a typical yoga class will cost 10 or $20, while a typical Alexander Technique session will cost about $100. So with yoga, you get to do something. And so it's a lot easier to feel good about yourself. With an Alexander Technique session, you are being challenged to become aware of your self-defeating muscular tension and compression habits that are getting in your way. So it's much more demanding. So yoga, you just get to go do something with Alexander Technique. You are being challenged to notice what your largely unconscious, subconscious habits of muscular tension and compression are. Start noticing these habits of unnecessary tension and compression and start letting go deeply ingrained habits that you've developed over the course of 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years. So Alexander Technique is a technique of subtraction where you are forced to confront yourself and notice your habits of needless tension and compression. While, while yoga, you can just go do something and feel like you're doing something positive. Now, when you go do yoga, you may be simply, in all likelihood, just ingraining negative habits of tension and compression and just making them worse. But you feel like you've done something good for yourself. Like so for $10, $20, you've done something social, and you feel like you've done something good for you. Well, in fact, you may have done yourself more harm than good. It may be with every yoga move, you are ingraining habits of tension and compression ever deeper into your system. And as a result, you will have even more health problems and be even more susceptible to to muscular pain and have even you know fewer options in life as your self-defeating tension and compression habits just become more and more ingrained so that the world just starts compressing down in on you along with your tension and compression habits. But taking a yoga class, right, it's an easy way to feel like you're doing something positive for yourself. It's a, like, oh, you know, I'm working on myself. When in fact, you may just be making your life worse, your health worse, your use of your body worse, but at least you get to feel like you're doing something positive. So there's much more of a an easy, you know, quick, quick, uh, positive, you know, feeling that you get from doing yoga. It's much more accessible. You can talk to you know anyone about taking yoga. Very few people know what the Alexander technique is, and you're much less likely to be challenged to examine what your patterns of needless tension and compression. Did I bring my CPAP to Australia? Yes, I did. My one shoulder is sore. I wonder if spike proteins in the muscle were exposed. Uh, my shoulders are tense all the time. Is that due to forward head posture? It's due to unnecessary tension and compression in your shoulders and neck and your head. So it may be forward head posture. 
all right, that's going to exacerbate the, the pulling of the muscle, the, the weight of your head, going to pull your spine, going to pull on your, on your muscles. So what you need to get to are those underlying habits and thinking patterns that cause you to get out of alignment. So usually these habits have to do with you know, negative self-talk. You know, I must do this. I've got to stop doing that. I'm a real idiot. I can't believe I failed yet again. Right. So that kind of self-talk increases unnecessary muscular tension, which then becomes habitual. And so we kind of know ourselves by our muscular tension patterns. And so when you learn to start releasing these muscular tension patterns, it's very bewildering because you no longer know yourself. You've gotten to where you are in life by trying really hard. But when you try really hard, you usually form patterns of unnecessary tension and compression. And your patterns of unnecessary tension and compression build upon each other. And they start mounting up so that less and less in life is, is possible to you. You become more and more constrained into thinking in more and more narrow ways that uh, you have less and less pleasure in just going for a walk in participating in everyday life activities because you have all these interfering muscular tension patterns. I have not read Mark Twain's writings on Christian science. Is it the shoulder of the arm you crank it out with? Yeah, so in, in all likelihood, it's, it's thinking patterns. It is self-punitive thinking patterns that cause most unnecessary muscular tension and compression, that cause the forward head posture, the tight shoulders, the unnecessary tension in your, in your spine, in your hips, in, you know, in your knees, in your hamstrings, all right? It, it's you know, remonstrating with yourself, beating yourself down, you know, a punitive attitude towards the self that is the primary cause of unnecessary muscular tension, compression, and, and just a general pulling down on yourself. Study aimed to sort of like correct that by exploring the perspectives and experiences of people who've left AA and weren't super happy with their experience. And the study conducted interviews with 11 ex-AA members from the US, Australia, and England. And what they found was basically that while participants enjoyed a lot of aspects of AA while they were in it, in retrospect, they realized that they probably stayed in AA for a long time because they felt, and I quote, indoctrinated into a particular way of understanding themselves. That's the part that I think makes it, and again, spoiler, because we already did an episode on this. I kind of think it's a watch your back still. Did We said watch your back, right? I think your final comment was that addicts need to watch their backs always. In whatever they pursue, yeah. which is fair enough. So all in-group experiences have culty elements. Enjoy your in-group and also maintain a little bit of distance at times where you can see what you're saying and doing as members of an in-group from an out-group perspective, right? So that way you can enjoy your in-group, enjoy it blindly, participate fully, and then on occasion step back and think, okay, what am I saying and doing in this in-group? What does my in-group represent to people who are outsiders and don't have any necessary connection or positive or negative feeling about the in-group? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I remember someone, an Orthodox Jew, just was like yelling out on a Sabbath afternoon, you know, death to the Arabs, right? In, in Los Angeles, right? That's that's kind of a an intense Jewish identity that, that he has, but really anti-social thing to be yelling out loud, you know, as you 
walk around in, in greater Los Angeles. That doesn't make Jews look good. It's not good for you. So that's an example of the crazy things that you can say when you have a particularly intense in-group identity. It's usually, you know, a self-destructive and antisocial thing. Walk around yelling, you know, death to particular groups. Man, we talked about so many things. I literally forget what I said. It was kind of genius because it was an amazing way of like circumventing the question at hand. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing is like the way that this is said, it said been indoctrinated into a particular way of understanding themselves. I think that's the key. It's how they see themselves, not how they see the world. Uh-huh. So that only affects you, but that's bad. That yeah, can still be bad. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. No. So maybe in your mind, you think something would be a get the fuck out if you've ostracized a massive swath of the general population. But AA, according to the study, kind of does that in the insular world of AA. Yeah, it's true. I think it's more so for me that traditional cults are a lot about how you see the world and it's about convincing other people to join you. And there's never really that recruitment aspect to AA because they literally don't talk about it outside of it. Yes, but I think it's just subtler. And they're not trying to recruit everybody because everybody isn't an addict. So their pool of recruits is a little bit smaller naturally. It's important to go back to this study because I feel like it's kind of like our North Star in this episode. Yeah, for sure. But they said that their findings demonstrated a disparity between the idealistic principles in AA and the actual experience of participants. Mm -hmm. It's like the difference between what you thought AA was going to be and what it actually was. There will always be a dramatic difference between the idealistic principles of any group and the actual experience. So this isn't something that's uh, unique to AA. Now, I think AA is great, but along with all things that are great, everyone benefits from accurate criticism and from learning about how outsiders who aren't buying into your in-group, how do they see these things? And I think that's, it's so important that they mention that this was discussed in relation to a possibility of a bunch of different experiences across varying AA groups. And I think that's what's so hard to analyze about AA is that it is these groups of people that all associate themselves with this one organization, but they're meeting in different places around the world. And so every single group is going to take in the culture of the place where it's meeting. Yeah, every group is going to have a slightly different culture because there is no centrally organized body. But I think there... Question in the chat, do I find it repellent when women use foul language? It depends on the context. I don't inherently find it repellent. So. I've spent so much of my life in, in the secular world that probably I've been desensitized to this as opposed to if I'd lived you know, a much higher proportion of my life in Orthodox Judaism. Well, plenty of Orthodox Jews swear, but uh, I'm not sure Orthodox Jewish women swear as much as, say, non-Orthodox Jews and non-Jews. There are through lines just by the nature of how AA presents itself. And I think we can walk through some of what these culty aspects are. Yeah, everything's got culty aspects. You know, religion, so I'm clubs. a and I'm located in Denver, Colorado. And in my program at the University of Denver to get my master's in social work, we read this book um, in our trauma and substance abuse class. I remember in the book, there were quite a few of these treatment centers that followed the 12-step process, among some other things, 
and were extremely re-traumatizing for the folks who were in treatment. I think it's really interesting to like think about the idea of the 12-step program being culty because like clinically there's just a lot of stuff there about the danger of what that can do and the way that some of these programs are contributing to these sociological trends with substance use. Hi, this is Holly from Byron Bay, Australia, really culty place. My 12-step experience was with CODA. I did about 10 years ago for a few years. I went to a really beautiful women's group and then a few people from um, a big town came and uh, they kind of started another CODA group. So swearing was relatively rare among the Seventh-day Adventists that I grew up with. So the more committed you are, the more religious you are as an Adventist, the less likely you are to swear. So not swearing and, you know, other inhibitory practices have much more importance in Seventh-day Adventism than in Orthodox Judaism. So it's kind of stunned when I entered Orthodox Judaism and saw how freely many people swear. So if you swear as a Seventh-day Adventist around religious, fervent Seventh-day Adventists, it, it's understood as kind of a marker that you haven't truly accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. While Judaism has all these behavioral requirements in, say, eating kosher, keeping the Sabbath, observing the laws of taharat, mishpacha, family purity, so that uh, someone who swears, all right, it's, it's generally speaking not considered such a, a a big deal. All right, I, I've met I met very few Orthodox Jews who are you know upset or repelled by by swearing, while you know pretty much all the religious Adventists I knew you know, just thought it was heinous. Yeah, maybe in Haredi circles, swearing is considered bad. Seventh Day Adventism kosher the same is kosher in Seventh Day Adventism the same as in mainstream Judaism, not exactly, but there are. There, there are some similarities. So there's certainly a notion of unclean meats in both Judaism and in Seventh-day Adventism. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists are supposed to be vegetarian, but uh, two-thirds of Seventh-day Adventists still eat some, some meat and, and fish. And took it over and then had all these rules and they were very controlling with their sponsees. And even my own experience with CODA, I had real issues with sponsees. Like all my codependent issues basically were playing out in the CODA group. But I learned so much and I'm so grateful for my years there. And I did 12 steps really thoroughly, but I did leave because I felt my codependency issues were just digging deeper in that environment. Does the vocal fry increase bodily tension? Yeah, probably. So vocal fry, what happens when you keep talking after you've run out of breath? So you're not aligned, right? When you got vocal fry, you're not in balance. You're not your, your best self. You're straining, right? Anytime you strain your voice, you strain your ankles, you strain your hips, you strain your neck, right? Anytime you're straining, you're going to be much more likely to have other forms of unnecessary tension and compression, right? It takes a great deal of effort to strain, and effort usually results in an increase in unnecessary tension and compression. Tom says, AA was my first entrance to self-development and religious and spiritual life. It's a good program for those who deal with family problems. Yeah, and Al-Anon is the best program for learning how to get along with other people. How often do Orthodox Jews smoke cigarettes? So it's fairly rare in Los Angeles, but in you know, other parts, probably Israel, among many Haredi Jews, it's probably very common. So the more modern the Jew, the less likely they are to smoke cigarettes, the more 
traditional and removed from the modern world, the, the Jew, the more likely they are to smoke cigarettes. There are certain rabbis who spoke out against smoking cigarettes, but the, those general patterns still hold true. What is CODA? That's Codependence Anonymous. So it's uh, somewhere between Al-Anon, which is literally for people who have alcoholics in their life, and say Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, SLA. So it sounds like dinner is ready. I think the cultiest thing about 12-step programs is that they straight up ask you to just admit your powerlessness, that they ask you to admit that you're completely powerless and that the only thing that can help you is what they have. So powerless is in reference to a particular addiction, and it means that if you are powerless with regard to alcohol, it means that if you have one drink, you don't have 100% power over how many more drinks. So powerless literally means having less than 100% power over something. So if you begin under earning, say you goof off when you're at work and you start surfing the internet, uh, you're not you're not going to be exactly sure you know, how long you're going to spend goofing off. And you know, many under earners, they just have the attitude, oh, I can get away with it. So many addicts also have this attitude, oh, I can get away with it, and then things start to spiral. I've always thought about, like, what would I do if I developed an addiction? Because a real turnoff about 12-step programs for me is that they're fundamentally religious. Like, baked into their literature and their big book is talk of God. I think that, like, at this point in the United States, like, of course, lots of organizations are going to have Protestant roots. That's just, like, reflective of our culture at large. Yeah. But I do think it is a little bit problem. Do I have no agency if I'm powerless? Well, in the 12-step approach to powerlessness, it simply means that you have less than 100% agency. So if you only have 99% agency with regard to debting or earning or spending or pornography or alcohol or drugs, right, the, the approach is recognizing powerlessness, that extent of, of lack of powerlessness. So you can have 95% agency and 5% powerlessness, and you can still should be able to relate to the concept of uh, powerlessness. So it means, let's say, chocolate is brought out. If you only have 95% agency and 5% powerlessness with regard to chocolate, then you have a rough idea that if chocolate is offered to you, you're not 100% sure that you're going to make the best decisions for yourself with regard to the chocolate. And I know they say that your higher power can be whatever it means to you, but this was a group that stemmed from and was founded upon religious Christian ideology. And as like, you know, the atheist daughter of scientists, that just like does not work for me. So I think devil's avocado time. Well, they don't know what devil's avocado means yet. Oh, all right. Yeah. Explain, I've just been recording. Like, explain devil's avocado for the people. So I have started to be like devil's advocate in the podcast, but I hate the term devil's advocate because I feel like it's historically linked to people defending annoying things and like the devil doesn't need an advocate. So I've... I think of like male libertarian. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but to keep the podcast interesting, you know we have to look at both sides yes. and um i hate saying devil's advocate so i've started to say devil's avocado 
which I think is really funny. I like it too. I like it too. Sorry. I was just taking a sip of a beverage, but I meant to laugh. (laughs) No, but I actually think that the fact that it started out fundamentally religious and now they have transitioned into removing the word God and removing... Well, some groups uh, transition to removing the word God. 12-step groups in general are not removing the word God. Alexander says, my problem with the 12 steps and AA is that it can't make up its mind, whether it's for free will or determinism, there's too much flip-flopping. So AA and other 12-step programs are not primarily philosophical systems, right? They are spiritual programs that help people overcome problems that they otherwise have not been able to overcome. And uh, philosophical consistency is not priority number one. So the 12-step approach is if you're not sure what's going to happen if you have a drink or you start using pornography or you start spending online, if you don't feel like you have 100% agency and you have repeated problems with certain processes, such as sex or surfing the internet or using pornography, or if you have a problem with certain substances such as food, alcohol, drugs, and you can consistently take actions that are against your self-interest and you can't stop doing this then it sounds like you are not free in relation to certain substances and to certain processes and many people find that approach helpful it doesn't have to be philosophically true it doesn't have to be rational or coherent it uh, it's just a matter of does it work or not so let's uh, wrap it up there i think for for tonight and uh, carry on another day it is currently 7 18 p.m on monday december 26 in uh, tenham sands australia and that's it for now bye bye